was, I'm a little disoriented because I was in Boston earlier uh, today, and now I'm in, in Michigan. So, but we are part of the same time zone, I, I realize, uh, that this is not the Midwest. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat humble because uh, when I thought about coming here over a week ago after we, we defeated uh, the Detroit Tigers <laughs> in the ALCS, that, uh, that I might be able to come with a, a whole lot of confidence, but uh, the Lord has humbled me uh, after uh, last night's game, but we'll, we'll leave it up tonight. Um, when uh, your pastor invited me, and I'm very grateful that you have asked me to be here, um, and I was, I was encouraged to come because I, I love spending time with other pastors because uh, I get to spend time with uh, graduate students who are in seminary, and to be honest with you, uh, they're not that fun. You know, they're, <laughs> they're a little spoiled, especially Western American seminary students, and, um, um, and I like spending time with pastors because I can learn a lot from them, um, be able to share all of our experiences and the faithfulness of God uh, in our lives, and and so it's, it's, it's a great delight for me to be here for that tomorrow, but, but also to be able to uh, preach um, uh, this sermon. If we could open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, it's a very well-known passage. I'd like to look at it, traditionally known as the Christ hymn. And I'd like to read verses uh, 1 through 13. Philippians 2 verses 1 and following. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the reading of God's word. Um, I remember um, several years ago, I uh, read a, a very interesting article written by Susan Hepp. And she was talking about the, the difference between uh, truth and love, uh, the tension between uh, holiness and, and mercy, and the difference between uh, truth and love. And, and she said that if there were to be a young woman who was involved in a relationship with uh, her boyfriend who is very narcissistic, uh, I guess there would be one of two different ways that she could express her frustration in, in, in talking about the problems in that 
relationship. She can essentially just talk to him, uh, like giving out grammar, uh, making sure that everything gets uh, presented a certain way. But another way to do it would be to, to do it in a poetic way, because we clearly know there's a difference between grammar and poetry. Uh, there's a difference between merely speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. And so she went on to say that she could say it this way. Uh, the first way that she could say it is to look at her boyfriend and say, the problem in our relationship is that you are self-centered, that you are self-absorbed, uh, you are narcissistic, you are self concentrated. That is the problem in our relationship. Now, when was the last time that somebody came to you, whether it was your husband or your wife or or close friend, and and addressed you that directly, that all of a sudden your eyes were open and the scales fell off, and you said, oh, thank you so much for speaking to me this way. This is exactly what I needed, that sort of direct, truthful admonition. Of course, uh, you know, the heart gets defensive and it starts blame shifting. We're never the problem, right? Uh, but Susan Heck went on to say there would be a, another way that she could say it. She could say essentially the same thing, not just speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. And she could look at her boyfriend and say, the problem in our relationship is that we're both in love with the same person. <laughs> what we find uh, in, in the Word of God, and even here in Philippians chapter 2, there is that tension. There, there, there is the, the tension between that which is holy and majestic, and that which is meek. There's a tension here between uh, the, the majesty of God and the humility of God in Christ. And what, what Paul is trying to say is, is he's, he is exhorting the church in Philippi to grow in grace and maturity. And he, and he wants to help us understand it in this way. The first would be, he gives us a picture of growth and maturity for a gospel-shaped life. You see, it, it, is not, it is not sufficient enough for us to simply believe the gospel. Of course, we need to at least do that. But our lives and our ministries must be shaped by that gospel which we believe. So we can't just simply say, I'm gospel-believing, but, but, but the gospel needs to shape. We need to be shaped by that gospel for every dimension uh, of life and ministry. So Paul is going to give us a picture of what that growth is, what that maturity is in a gospel-shaped life. And secondly, he's going to show us the power for that growth, and thirdly, the progression of it. The first is the picture of this growth. Look with me again in verses 1 through 4. So if there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Now, the word humility that is used here uh, shows up around 270 times in the Bible. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, this idea or this concept of humility uh, was something that was shunned. It was something that was rejected because that Hellenistic world despised weakness and they did not have a sensitivity for gentleness. As you are aware, like in the Corinthian community, uh, they elevated what we will call 
patronage. Uh, they elevated uh, aligning themselves with a patron and being a client and making sure that just as the reputation of the patron would increase by being in association with that patron, that you yourself will be elevated as a client. They were all about patronage. They were also all about the art of rhetoric. They wanted the ostentatious kind of external displays of power. And that is why Apostle Paul says, well, the gospel comes in weakness, and it is very inverted and subversive. It is very different than what the way the world calibrates a person's worth. It's not about strength, but it's about weakness. Um, and it's not about wisdom, but it actually seems, the cross seems very foolish to the world. So the wisdom of God seems foolish to the world. And so when Apostle Paul uses this idea in this term, humility, it is something that is scorned by the world. And he contrasts this humility with this other uh, idea where he says in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Now this word here, conceit, uh, the older translations uh, give us uh, different uh, words for this in the English. They'll use the word like vainglory, which is actually a very good translation of this uh, Greek word. This Greek word uh, comes from two separate words. One is empty, and the other one is glory, right? So we know uh, the word, uh, we get the English derivatives for glory from the Greek, like doxology or doctrine, doxological. And the other word is emptiness. So in essence, what Paul is saying is, is that when you're conceited, you, there is an honor vacuum in your heart. There, there, there is an a honor starvation that is happening in your heart. That there is an emptiness of glory. We so desperately want glory, but we lack the glory. And there is an emptiness, a vacuum of honor and glory within our hearts. So therefore, we end up being conceited. We, we are vain glorious. That we want to grasp glory and honor from everywhere that we can find it. And therefore, Apostle Paul uses the same word in Galatians 5.26 when he says, Do not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And commentators have pointed out that, that provoking one another will be somebody who has a superiority complex, so they sense as though that there is some level of glory that they have gained from other places. Of course, not from God, from other places whether it's from their career or from their some sort of identity formation from other things, their accumulation and the like. And therefore, those who sense as though they have a little bit more glory, a little bit more honor, will provoke those who are below them. So that will be a superiority complex. But for others, they will be, they will be envying other people when they are conceited because they realize that they are struggling with an inferiority complex. Like uh, that great character, one of my favorite characters, uh, characters in, in Shakespeare, Iago of Cassio, where he says something like this. He says, He hath a beauty daily that makes me ugly. In other words, he is saying, I mean, he might have been handsome himself, but there is someone else who is a little bit above him, somebody who is, is kind of a further along and more advanced, whatever that might be, whether it's aesthetic beauty or whether it is through professional advancement. And so whenever we see that person, even though you yourself might be extremely competent and skilled and gifted, 
when you compare yourself, when you're engaged in comparative anthropology, and when you look at someone else who is slightly above you, then you will envy that person. That person's beauty uglifies you, even though you yourself might be beautiful. And this is the way the human heart works when we are going after different uh, systems of honor and glory. There are other sources in the process we become conceited and vain uh, glorious. And this is what uh, Apostle Paul is trying to tell us. That there are all sorts of relational pathologies uh, that develop uh, in our hearts. Why? Because deep within our hearts, there is this hunger for validation. Even though you might not say that approval is one of your major idols, um, We all want to be accepted and not rejected. We all want to know that we're consequential and not inconsequential. We want to know that we have value and meaning for our lives. And we hate to be neglected. So whenever I get couples coming into my office for counseling, as the other pastors here will be able to to share their experiences, oftentimes the couples will come in and the complaints that we would hear, uh, many complaints from wives would be that I don't sense as though I am loved or my husband pays enough attention to me or I don't sense as though he cherishes me, right? Remember that old word, cherishes me? And what is it? It's ultimately that they long to know that they are valuable, that they are special, that they are accepted. That is why when the couples will come and they'll tell me, you know, um, we're, we're struggling in our marriage, so I said, okay, go ahead, describe for me what it is, you know, set aside the blame shifting right now, and just tell me what's going on, and, uh, and they'll say, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of fighting that's going on, and I'll usually hear them out, and I'll say, well, okay, your, your marriage has a, a lot of hope, and they said, what, what do you mean, our marriage has a lot of hope, we're here telling you that we've got problems in our marriage, and I said, well, your, your marriage would be extremely problematic uh, if you weren't communicating at all. I mean, granted that the vocabulary that you're using to refer to your uh, spouse might be very colorful. Uh, nevertheless, you're at least acknowledging the person to be human. At least you're acknowledging that person's presence. When you ignore them, you're essentially dismissing them. You're essentially raka-ing them, as it says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, a Greek term which simply means that that person is a non-person. You're dehumanizing that person when you ignore. That is why I'd rather have somebody yell at me than to, than to ignore me. Do you remember uh, the movie Rocky? The, 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 the original Rocky, not Rocky 7, 8, 9, 10, how many ever there. Although he did go back to his roots with Rocky Balboa, right? Uh, but the, the great ones, the first two with Apollo Creed, and, and then even three was not bad with uh, Clubber Lang, right? I pity the fool, Mr. T, remember? Uh, and, and do you remember in the first two when uh, Rocky would go to his wife and, 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 and say, Adrian, you know? Uh, and this is what he said. He wasn't so concerned about winning the fight. He just said, if I can just go the distance, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. I think that deep inside of our insecurities, there is a bummishness in our hearts. We, 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 want, we don't want to be a bum. 
No, we, 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 don't, we don't want people to think that we're inconsequential. That is why we're so aspirational. Colin Campbell, in his book, The Romantic Ethic and the Spirit of Modern Consumerism, talks about an imaginative hedonism, which is very different than sensual hedonism. I believe for many of us, we are more involved in a future-oriented, aspirational, imaginative, fantasizing of what we can get, not necessarily what we have. It's not so, so much about sensual, uh, conspicuous consumption, but it's more about an imaginative one. That is why you'll look at your, all of our glossy magazines, right? Whatever they are, right? And we all have a weakness to a certain glossy magazine, right? Mine will be Architectural Digest. And I look at our Architectural Digest, and, and, and I have a beautiful home. I live in the city of Austin, and it's an old Victorian row house. But I remember when I first bought my home, and I went down the street to, to the local uh, coffee shop at, waiting for a drink, and I was sitting there reading uh, the, the most recent um, uh, edition of Architectural Digest, and I saw this, this uh, refrigerator that I had never seen. It was a sub-zero, gagano, something kind of uh, very, very flashy uh, refrigerator, and it was like $40,000. I said, I need to get me one of those. Now, I can't afford to get a $40,000. My kitchen is perfectly fine. My fr- refrigerator doesn't need to be sub-zero. It's, you know, it keeps things cold, and it's perfectly fine. But what is it? It's, it's aspirational. This magazine is telling me that I will have greater value if I am able to gain certain things in my life, whatever that might be. And what Apostle Paul is saying is that we become conceited when there is a glory vacuum. And what he's trying to say is that a picture of growth is an individual who understands humility. Humility is about being other-centered, not self-centered. It means you're more concerned about the other person's interest before your own. Now, some of you might say, well, is this, quite, is this really possible? Well, I mean, those of you who are mothers, right, mothers of young children, or those of you, your children might be old now, but you remember when you were raising them, when they were first born? For the first, like, eight months, there's nothing that the child is doing to contribute to the, the harmony within the home, right? I mean, the child is burping and spitting up and waking you up every one and a half hours wanting to be fed and, uh, and, and, and soiling uh, his or her diaper. And there wasn't much that the child was doing. But what happened? You're not speaking to your six-month-old baby saying, you know, I've been laboring, I've been sacrificing, I've been doing so much for you. You know, wh- what are you going to do to reciprocate my sacrificial love for you? Of course, we don't communicate. I mean, you shouldn't be communicating to a six-month-old baby that way. Anyways, but the point is, is that there isn't anything that the child can give back in return. It's pure one-way giving. But why is it? Well, let me just kind of speak to the, to the ladies here. Why is it that if you have within yourself the capacity to be able to relate to your children that way, maybe not so much now because they're grown up and toddlers and and they need to know better, why is it that if we have the capacity to do that with our children, when we are relating to our husbands, we expect a lot more? What I'm trying to say is, I mean, the the husbands ought to love you and care for you. I'm not saying saying that they they ought not to make sacrifices for you. I mean, that's the way that they lead their families, right? The way Christ 
died for the church. Ephesians 5 is very, very clear. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that when we are called as followers and disciples of Christ, we are called to a life of humility where it's more about the other person's needs before my own. And you might be saying, well, then who's going to take care of me? I mean, who, who, who's going to be concerned about my needs? I mean, when, when you're going out there, you know, uh, in your comfortable hotel room and, and, and watching the Boston Red Sox, you know, who's taking care of your children? Well, my wife, I think, is, is taking care of my, our children. But the point is, is that when you have a wealth of emotional strength, when your heart is filled with emotional wealth, When we understand the humility we'll see in a moment in the life of Jesus Christ, that becomes a power generator for your growth. Look what it says here in verses 5 and following. This will be our second point, the power for growth. It says here, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is not merely an example, although he's at least that. But he is a substitutionary Savior who has come to lay down his life. Now, many scholars say, oh, we don't know how to take the references to his exaltation and to be able to see how it relates to all the references of his humility. So what do the scholars do? They always cop out and make these easy excuses by saying, oh, there must have been a later editor. I mean... Why can't you see that perhaps that in the person of Jesus Christ, that when he became the substitutionary Savior, that in himself you have the full majesty of the glory of God, who emptied himself of the privileges and the rights, not of his deity, of course, because he was always the second person of the Godhead, but demonstrating through his incarnation and through his death, even to the point of death on the cross, that we see the meekness and the inverted, upside-down, ironic, alternative picture of what it means to be strong. And we see here the reason why he was able to do this was because he came in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a servant. Let me just give you a, a quick picture of what this looks like in the Bible. Adam was called to be a servant of God. Israel... Corporate Israel was called to be a servant of God. Do you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and and said, let my people go, speaking on behalf of God, let my people go so that they might be able to go into the wilderness and serve me. Israel was called to be a servant. All of the other representatives were called to be servants. But because they fell, because they were not able to quite be the kind of perfect servant that God wanted them to be, In redemptive history, someone else needs to come and to be that perfect servant. He needs to be the second Adam. He needs to be the second Moses. He needs to be true Israel to be able to fulfill the messianic duties 
that they fail to do. You see, if you don't have Jesus as the person who fulfills all the requirements of the servants from the Old Testament, then we're in big trouble because now it's pretty much up to us to be able to be the kind of humble person that I'm supposed to be. But again, when the flesh tells us, I don't want to be humble, when the flesh wants to to kind of have my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not your will be done, the only way that there will be any hope for us, for us to have any sort of progress for growth and maturity for a gospel-shaped life will be for there to be an outside servant who comes into this world, who lays down his life and communicates his righteousness, his humility, his strength, his blood-bought work of his dying on the cross, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died, and giving that righteousness and humility and perfect life as that perfect servant to us. It's not coincidental that we find language when we first see the picture of what it means to be humble. It's the same language that is used here. It says here that he made himself nothing. It's interesting, right? Uh, When when it says uh, that word there is the same word that we found in conceited or or part of that word. The word conceited in the Greek uh, is a combination of emptiness and glory. And this word here, nothing, is the word for emptiness. So in other words, we don't have any glory, and we're always trying to acquire glory, but we are conceited because there's emptiness of glory and an honor vacuum. Jesus is full of glory, and he's full of honor, but he gives it up. You see what Paul is trying to do here? He's trying to say that the only way that you will, your heart to be filled with the glory of God. The only way that your heart will be filled with the kind of honor that you're longing to have is for you to see that there was somebody who was full of honor, full of glory, who gave it up. Understanding power, friends, is not about power accumulation. It's about power distribution. It's about leveraging the power for the common good. It is using your power as leverage and your influence as leverage to stand for those people who are marginalized. Not to use it in a coercive and oppressive way. And therefore, when it says here that we ought to have an attitude that is the frame of mind, a permanent, comprehensive way of looking at things, Jesus' career was marked by not just one self-humbling, but two. His incarnation and His death and the work on the cross And when you humble yourself for Jesus' sake, not in order to manipulate the power, but to simply use it, you're participating in Jesus' work and understanding what He has done for us. In other words, the successive historical events of Jesus are at become the reality in your life. Let me read for you here what it says in in Ephesians chapter 2. It says here in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So think about it. He made us alive, He raised us up, and He seated us with Christ. This is something that has happened in the past. This is not something that will happen in the future. This is in the past tense. So how is it possible that the successive historical events of Jesus' 
resurrection, his ascension, and his session, seating at the, seating, uh, sitting at the right hand of God. How can that become a reality for our wealth? It is because it's something that has been imputed or communicated into our accounts because Jesus was that perfect servant. You know, the Bible talks about it over and over again when it talks about the tension between how this suffering servant can come in that majestic way. We see it all throughout Isaiah 52, 53, 54, 57. And that language is in the background for what is going on here. I don't have time to, to, to do that, but if you wanted to look at that, we see the similar language in those places of the suffering servant in the background for what is going on here. I also want to talk about three brief movements before I get to my final point, and it's this. We see here the three movements, almost like a symphony of what Jesus has done. We first see the incarnation. We see God emptied himself of his glory. Again, verse 6. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That would be the incarnation. God emptied himself of his glory. Secondly, we see the atonement that God substituted himself for us. It says here uh, in verse 8, And being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And thirdly, we see that God will make a new world. We see the resurrection. We see the incarnation. We see the atonement. We see the resurrection. And this is a picture of the work that Christ has done for us. And finally, if that is the power for our growth in what Christ has done for us, then what is the progression of growth? I think that sometimes, and and I'll kind of critique myself as well, we preach gospel-centered, Christ-centric sermons, and we tend to just kind of end it there. And we say, this is what God has done for us. God has been radically gracious. He has offered this to us, and we need to believe. And, and we don't show what it means to live a gospel-shaped life of obedience. Now, granted, if you go straight to obedience without establishing uh, the power generator that ought to motivate your heart to respond out of gratitude and adoration for what God has done for us, then that's mere moralism, right? I mean, we're just going to press the will and saying, well, folks, you're not doing well and you need to do better. Right? And then we leave the church feeling a little bit beaten up and, 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 and not sensing as though we're really growing. I'm sure that doesn't happen at this church. But, but what we need to do is, is that we, after establishing the power of the gospel in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we need to now talk about what it means to live a life that will progress in progressive sanctification towards growth and maturity. And Paul gives three examples. He talks about uh, his own life. He talks about the life of Timothy and then Epaphroditus. Look here with me, first with Paul in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what is it? Is it our work or is it God's work? Yes, that's the answer. It is God's work in us to move us to work for his good pleasure. 
It's not that we just receive God's work and it leads us to a life of license and antinomianism, which will be that we're not too concerned about the law. We're motivated by the power of the gospel. So it is the works that God has done for us that will motivate us for good works uh, for his pleasure. And look what he says in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Again, that word emptiness is the same word here in the Greek. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice. You see what he, he's using? He's borrowing language of how Jesus Christ himself was poured out like a drink offering where he became nothing through his incarnation and through his death and how he gave of himself sacrificially in this uh, one-way self-donation for his people. Apostle Paul now, as he thinks about his progression for growth, is using the same idea. Just as Christ has done this for me, I do the same. That I am more concerned about sacrificing myself and offering myself to you as your pastor. Secondly, with Timothy. Look with me in verse 20. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Have you seen that language somewhere again? He talked about the picture of growth, how we ought to be concerned about other people's interests before our own. Timothy is modeling that. And it also uses the language of serving. Where do we find that? Well, it's Jesus Christ who was the perfect servant. And because he gave of himself in obedience to the master as a perfect servant, now he gives us the power generator to be able to serve others. And lastly, with Epaphroditus, verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. Verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to him. And that's incredible. That Epaphroditus is feeling terrible because he's ill and he's not able to complete the work that he's been called to do to serve the, the congregation here at the church at Philippi. And he did it at the risk of his life. And the reason why he was able to do it at the risk of his life is because he sees the perfect servant who gave of himself, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. Dear friends, this sort of humility... It's paradoxical to the world, as I quote one author. But it's real royalty to us. In Jesus Christ, we see the combination of infinite power and complete vulnerability, unbounded justice yet unending mercy, transcendent highness and exquisite accessibility and nearness. We feel in the present something completely wild and unpredictable. It's mighty, it's powerful, and yet perfectly under control. The attraction is deep. It's real, really deep. It's a lordliness. It is a loyalty. It's a kingliness that we all long to have. The majesty is more majestic for the tenderness and the tenderness more tender for the majesty. It is a paradoxical combination of divine excellency. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. 
that you see in the person of Jesus Christ that divine excellency of exquisite majesty and power and holiness. But at the same time, the paradoxical combination, this kind of paradoxical kingliness and royalty and lordliness, where he is so meek, he is so humble, that he is a servant of all. As it says in John chapter 13, it says there, right before he's about to wash the disciples' feet, and before he is to go through the, the week of passion, and he, gets, he goes through suffering and, and dies on the cross. What does it say? It says, John writes, that Jesus knew that he, all things had been given to him. All things is a technical term in the Bible, which essentially means that he has the keys to all power. All things. He had come from the Father, and he was going back to the Father. And then you would expect, therefore, right, that there will be something like the transfiguration, or the resurrection, or the ascension, or something miraculous. But you know what he does? He takes off his outer garments, and puts a towel around his waist, and he washes the disciples' feet. Why does he do that? It is, it is the paradoxical combination. He knew that the way up is down. He knew that the way to lead is to first know how to follow. If you want to know anything about glory, you must first understand suffering. If you want to know about the resurrection, you need to understand the cross. If you want to be first, you must first learn to be last. If you want to know what it means to be placed in a position of leadership, you must be a humble servant. This is not a call to mediocrity. Mediocrity. This is not what the Bible is teaching. There was nothing mediocre about the work of Jesus Christ. But it is calling us to what I believe the world so desperately longs for, is this paradoxical combination. Somebody who is so gifted, so able, so competent, who's got all sorts of skills and gifts, but yet is willing to be humble and to serve others for the common good. Let me see if I can um, end with this. There is a a picture of this in 1 Kings chapter 3. Do you remember Solomon? Uh, He is uh, uh, convening uh, over his uh, kingdom when he is king, and two prostitutes uh, come to him. What ended up happening was was that uh, they both had infants, boys, around the same time, and they lived in the same home because uh, they wouldn't have been um, wealthy, and, and they were sharing a room. And, and one of the, the mothers accidentally uh, suffocated the child when she slept on top of him, and, and she woke up in the middle of the night to find out that her son had died. And so what does she do? She takes her dead son and puts him next to the other uh, prostitute woman and takes her son and puts him next to, to her side. And, of course, when the other woman woke up in the morning, she figured out what had happened. So they both brought this case before King Solomon. And, uh, and they both explained, this is what happened. No, this is my son. And the other woman says, no, this is my son. And then what does Solomon do in a stroke of a genius, demonstrating his wisdom? He said, okay, uh, why don't we just kind of cut this one living son in half, and you can have one half, and you can have the other half, and we'll resolve this in a moment. And of course, what ended up happening? The real mother said, no, don't do that. Give this child to the other woman. And the other woman, who was not the real mother, was, you know what? If we, if we can't have it, then, then so let it be. 
what, what happened here was is that the real mother uh, gave something away in order to gain it. Whereas the, the false mother, she reached for something and lost it. This is a principle, a kind of an upside-down inverted principle of the mechanism and the dynamics of the gospel. In other words, are you willing to be disadvantaged in order to meet the needs of someone else? This is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy if you don't understand the gospel. Because we are driven by self-interest. And what Paul is trying to say is don't be driven by self-interest. Be driven by the interest of others. And if we have more people's hearts at this particular church, this wonderful church, Bethesda Church, if we have more hearts in this church being moved by the work of the gospel in this way, you know what we would have? We would have a church. That is what we would have. We would have a church. An alternative, counter-cultural community that is willing to think in a counter-intuitive way, going against the, the natural, fleshly heart impulse to want to have things done my way you know that that doesn't work very well in a marriage, right? And that doesn't work well in a church either. If you are concerned more about your interests rather than your wife's interests, you're not going to have harmony. But if there's at least one person in the marriage who's willing to do that, there's hope. And if there are two people in that marriage who are willing to do that, then you're soaring in your marriage. But if neither individual, neither spouse is willing to do that, then you'll only have factionalism and division. And it's the same dynamic that happens within the church. My prayer, I'm sure it's the prayer of your pastors, uh, is, is that the gospel will make its way into your heart, not just so that you can believe it cerebrally, but that it is shaping your heart. It's shaping your heart. That you will understand, you will understand, you will respond to Paul's admonition to serve and to be humble, to lay down your life. Not because it's just our duty, not because it is the right thing to do, not because he's pressing the will, but because he's showing you the beauty of what Jesus has done for us all. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for, for calling us to a life of a gospel-shaped life that will long to grow and to become mature. Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us all. Apostle Paul was a beautiful picture and illustration of that. Lord, we know by your grace that we can grow to that sort of maturity that the Bible describes because you have been so generous and gracious to us. It is the self-giving donation of Jesus that will move us to be concerned about the needs of others. I pray that that would happen for this wonderful church. The people who have come here, as the pastors continue to pastor and to preach the gospel faithfully and as they care for the needs of, of the wonderful folks who are here at this church, that the gospel will have its way, that it will motivate us to obedience for your glory and that we will be filled with honor and glory, great wealth of the gospel now and forever.
Let's close by responding.